Matthew chapter 10 seems like a distant friend that we have just uh, gotten back to know. I looked at my notes and uh, the dates in my, in my folder that keep my notes, and we were in Matthew 10 on the 29th of March. And so it's been a full month. The last week of March was the last time we were in Matthew chapter 10. And uh, today we're going to begin our study of the second portion of Matthew chapter 10. We made it through chapter 15, and I hope I can refresh your memory just a little bit before we read and then dive into the second half of this chapter. We began a switch in themes, and you remember that Matthew, of course, is, is writing to us. He's, he's actually writing first and foremost to Jewish people, but he's writing to us as the Holy Spirit indirectly has given this to us. He's writing to us thematically. He's not writing chronologically. This is not a historical day-by-day, moment-by-moment look at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. This is themes. Matthew has points that he wants to make. It's almost, it's almost a sermon. And so we've seen major teaching sections like the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen major portions of his miracle ministry for the sake of pointing to Jesus as the Messiah King. But those have not been chronologically given. And so at the end of chapter 9, we hit another one of these themes. And it was the mission that Jesus had come both to live and to give himself for. And that same mission that he would call his followers to embrace and to take up for him in his absence after his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father. In verse 35 of chapter 9, we saw the model himself, our king, on his mission. He's tireless, he's persistent, he is compassionate, his heart is broken for the people that he sees that are like sheep without shepherds. In chapter 10, right on the heels of telling the the crowd to pray for laborers, he sends out the first 12 laborers into into the harvest field. The first 12 kingdom missionaries are the guys you know best. They're the ordinary men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, not Luke, Matthew, Mark, John, James, Andrew, Peter. We know these men. We're, we're familiar with them. And, and Matthew recounted them for us just so that we could get a feel for these first 12 answers to prayer. In chapter 10, verse 5, down through verse 15, we saw how much instruction in a very specific scenario, in a historical account of that first short-term mission trip, We saw how much authority Jesus exercised and the point, the principles behind those detailed instructions that he gave. If you remember this, uh, we're not to take verses 5 through 15 and somehow try to make that a part of our daily life. We don't take a second cloak. We don't take a money belt. We don't take any bags. Um, Those were specific instructions for for a very specific scenario, but behind those instructions or just under the surface of those instructions, we see principles. And primarily we see that the king is the boss of this mission. And rightfully so, because this king died to save and to bring to himself the people that would respond to this kingdom mission. So the kingdom mission was modeled by Jesus. It was mobilized by Jesus in the first part of the chapter. And now in the second half, we're going to see him motivate the kingdom missionaries. He's going to speak in verses 16 down through the end of the chapter to these missionaries and speak to them not just in the short-term sense, not just in the 
the very specific what's about to happen kind of sense. He's going to speak to them in the big picture of what they should expect as his people carrying forth his message with his name stamped on their back. This is extremely important to us because what we find beginning in verse 16 is very helpful in our situation as well. If you are his child, you are his kingdom citizen, and you are going forth with his message, then you can still, you can still expect the kind of response that we're going to see modeled or spoken of here in verses 16 down through verse 25. And you can still expect to struggle with the fear that the 12 who sent out who were sent out on this first short term struggled with in verses 26 through 33 and you can still struggle and be confident you will struggle with understanding the very core of why Jesus is here why Jesus has come what his message will accomplish and what we should expect as kingdom missionaries and you remember that the laborers that we're praying for are followers of Christ, right? I don't want you to be misled this morning and think that the kind of laborers or the exclusive category of laborers into the harvest field are Josiah Grammans. Like, wow, the Lord answered prayer. Check that box off. Missions is happening. Let's go get some food and let's go home and get a nap. Right? That doesn't work. Jesus is saying, pray for laborers and the laborers are all those who are a part of his kingdom, who are then responsible out of affection and worship for their Savior to take the message of their king to the culture in which they live. We saw that in the Sermon on the Mount. We've picked up that same theme here in the kingdom mission focus of the end of chapter 9 through chapter 10. All right, let's read the passage that we're going to look at this morning, beginning in verse 16. Follow along silently as I read out loud. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious. How you are to speak. Or what you are to say, for you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel. You will not have completed the mission before the Son or until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those Will they malign those of his household? Now, let's begin by just looking at the reality of what Jesus says in verse number 16. Behold, switches gears for us. I, Jesus, am sending 
you, followers, out into the culture, into the world, into the society, into the valley. You're being sent by Jesus. He's, the, he's doing the sending. He's the authority behind this. But he describes us in verse number 16. Let's just get this straight. When we go out with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word picture that Jesus wants us to have of ourselves is that we are sheep in the middle of a wolf pack. Not a good situation for the sheep. I have been alone without my wife for over a week now. I couldn't talk to my wife for a week before that. And so at night she would say, why don't we watch something on television? Or why don't you read a book or do something? Because I just wanted to talk to my wife. And so if you know anything about me personally, when we talk about watching television, it usually includes National Geographic, Animal Planet, or Discovery Channel. I love all of those. I am borderline sinful in my addiction to those channels. And if you've ever watched any one of those three, you have, you have seen at some point the predator go after the prey. You have seen the swipe of the claw that knocked out the hamstring of that poor little gazelle that was booking it for all it was worth. You've seen that. And Jesus, in their context, in the Jewish mindset, there could be no bigger predator versus prey mismatch than a wolf versus a sheep. Jesus here paints a picture of utter defenselessness versus total aggression. And he says, that's what you should expect. Say, what is it like to be a Christian? How should I describe myself? One description from your Savior is that you're a sheep in the middle of a wolf pack. In other words, those who would boldly speak and would truthfully speak about Jesus and proclaim his kingdom gospel, proclaim the truths that are so so clearly revealed on the pages of Scripture that man is indeed sinful and that Jesus is in fact the only substitute for man. And to follow him is to bow the knee to him and call him Lord over all lords. That is to become a defenseless sheep in the midst of the predator wolves. So, with that characteristic placed before us, we as kingdom citizens are assumed to be and, and called to be kingdom missionaries. And as kingdom missionaries, we are defenseless sheep in the middle of predator packs of wolves. Those are the unbelieving culture around us. But we stand with the truth that we've been sent by the king of kings, the chief shepherd of our flock. We are not alone in this wolf pack, for we are there with the authority and with the sending of our Savior. But it will necessitate in us, in verse 16, some very clear attitudes and life patterns. Notice at the end of verse 16, your Bible says, so be wise and innocent. Now, when you see so in your Bible, you need to understand that that what we find here is an explanation or a result of what we've just read. So what happens here is Jesus says a fact and now he's going to say, now here's the result in you or the implications of that fact on your life. So if you're a sheep and you're in the midst of wolves, if you're being sent out on the kingdom mission, if you are living your life for the gospel of the kingdom. Here's what needs to happen. You are in danger. You will be hated. You will be persecuted. It should be expected. It should be assumed. 
And because of that reality, here is the implication upon our lives. We need to be wise and we need to be innocent or simple is actually the word that is given to us. Two word pictures are helpful for us. Wise or shrewd as a serpent. Serpent, just a snake. And a snake is one that you usually don't see until the snake's ready for you to see him. A snake is sly and slick and scares me more than any other animal on the planet. I am terrified of snakes. I just confess it, okay? I'm a chicken when it comes to snakes. It all started back when I was about five and a black snake decided to cross the sidewalk that I was walking on. And unknown to me at that point at five, I was deadly afraid of snakes. So there in the midst of other people, the black snake came across. I screamed so much that they probably heard me counties away. And I ran as fast as I could away from the snake. Snakes do not come out unless they want to come out. In fact, I imagine the poor black snake was probably just as scared of me as I was of him. Jesus uses the picture of a serpent or a snake as the implication of our danger because the snake is cunning. It is shrewd. It is deliberate in its movements. It is not unaware of its surroundings. It's extremely aware of its surroundings. So Jesus says, you're going to have to be wise like a snake. On this mission, you're going to have to be aware of where you are. You're going to have to be aware of danger. You're going to have to be conscious of your situation. But you're also going to need to be innocent or simple, just like a dove. Now, poor doves, they're on the opposite extreme of snakes. A dove is the same concept of a pigeon in American culture. Maybe pigeons make better sense to you. Guys, you need to stop thinking about dove hunting. Think pigeon, okay? We're talking about an animal that is so naturally domesticated that it doesn't know to be afraid of the presence of its surroundings. Um, Pigeons will just sit there until you are right, ready to step on them, and then they'll fly away, or they'll just run away. Pigeons and doves are simple in their outlook. They really don't have any cunning or shrewdness, no strategy No awareness of anything other than life going on in another day in the life of a pigeon. Jesus says those two qualities are going to have to come together because of who you are as kingdom missionaries. You're going to have to mirror both of them. You're going to need to be shrewd and intentional and purposeful in your mission. You're going to need to be aware of your circumstances because you are in danger. But at the same time, you have to have a simplicity. You need an innocence about you that is so singularly focused on your mission that really your your cunning or your wisdom or your shrewdness does not turn into human strategy and your innocence and your simplicity does not turn into naivete. That's the picture, that's the reality of the kingdom missionary that we see in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 10. One of these descriptions without the other one creates an imbalance. Shrewdness without simplicity becomes cheap strategy in a human sense. But innocence without wisdom and cunning becomes naivete. It becomes ignorance. Jesus clearly tells the disciples and he clearly communicates to us the situation for kingdom missions. It is sheep and they're in the middle of predator wolves. Now, in the big picture of this paragraph, Let me outline this for you. Let me state this for you. The big idea that I believe we come to, and I trust that we'll see clearly as we walk through this paragraph, 
is that because kingdom missionaries are defenseless and surrounded by danger, they must be wise and innocent primarily by setting their minds according to the king's instruction. Because kingdom missionaries are in such danger, they must be wise and innocent. And their wisdom and innocence will be directly correlated to their minds being set according to the king's instructions. Does that make sense? If we're going to have wisdom and simplicity in our daily life as kingdom missionaries, it'll be because we have set our minds according to the instructions of our Lord. And the instructions of our Lord and setting our minds and our expectation are found right here in verses 17 through 25. And I just want to take the briefest moment to give an overview of those instructions from our king. There are three of them. You can follow along in your scriptures as we walk through these quickly together. Number one, mental instruction, setting your mind according to what your Savior has said. Do not be optimistic about persecution. Don't be optimistic. Um, If you're here this morning and you're the eternal optimist in your family, the glass is never half empty. It's always half full. That's you. All right, we're going to have to set that aside just at least to think like our Savior instructs us to think. Because we cannot be optimistic about the world in which we are serving Him. We cannot be optimistic about those who are receiving the message that we are, we are giving for Him. I'll show you why I believe that this instruction is the first in our paragraph. Look at verse 17. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Beware of men. That's why I think the first instruction is do not be optimistic about persecution. Beware of men. Jesus says you're going on the mission. You're going to be out as my spokesman for the gospel. And do not get a misconception about the world's situation as it stands to the kingdom. Beware of men. Why? For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Jesus is speaking here to a Jewish context. These are Jewish councils. These are Jewish courts. And these are Jewish synagogues. Where prior to and immediately after Pentecost, the Jewish Christians still went to the synagogue to worship. They still went to where the scriptures were read. To hear the Old Testament scriptures. And it would be in those synagogues and before those religious courts that they would be brought by men, by the general population. You remember back in verse number 6 that Jesus had commanded the disciples in the short-term mission to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So it's very Jewish in its context. Don't be optimistic about the response to the message. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be drugged before courts. You're going to be drugged into synagogues. And you're going to be flogged. I'd be willing to wager, if we were going to wager in church this morning, I'd be willing to wager that none of you have been flogged. And that most of you don't even know what flogging is. Um, Maybe you do. Flogging is not a generic word for beating. This is a very Jewish concept that really took place. They really did flog people in the public worship center. Can you imagine this? And we're committed to church discipline here. We're committed to people who claim to be Christians living their lives in such a way that they mirror that profession. But we will not be flogging anyone anytime soon as a part of our public service. 
We've got a little difference this morning, kids. We'd like you to stay in your seats because we need to flog someone. That's not going to happen, okay? Flogging was done with a corded uh, whip, a short whip, and they were flogged no more than 39 times. It was Jewish law. But it was to set an order and to keep uh, control over the Jewish cultures. Jesus says, get ready. Don't be optimistic. When you go out into the Jewish community and you say, Jesus is the Christ, the kingdom is here. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. They're going to drag you into the court. They're going to bring you before the council. They're going to take you into the public worship center. And they're going to flog you. This is life in the mission. Don't be optimistic. Don't be naive. Beware of men. There's going to be religious opposition. There's also going to be governmental opposition. Look at verse 18. And, if it wasn't already bad enough, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. That is the general population of Gentiles. So both before the kings and leadership and the Gentile peoples. Jesus comforts the disciples with this little phrase that we find in the middle of verse 18. They will be going through this. What are the three words that you find in the middle of verse 18? For my sake. Jesus, throughout this section of setting their minds according to his instruction, he gives little encouragements to them along the way. This is what you can expect. Don't be optimistic. You're even going to be pulled before the Gentiles, but it will be for my sake, on my account, and it will be for a very distinct purpose. Verse number 18, at the conclusion of the verse, we find out the purpose, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. In other words, Jesus says, don't be optimistic about the persecution. Don't think that, you know what, I've heard about persecution, it's got to be somewhere else. I read about it in Voice of the Martyrs, and it's happening over in Sri Lanka. Uh, We're way far away from that. So that must be what they go through. And God must, in in His divine wisdom, have thought that American Christians shouldn't have any persecution. No, if we're faithful in the kingdom mission, as kingdom missionaries, we can be guaranteed, Paul tells Timothy, that anyone who desires to live for the gospel will suffer persecution. We can expect it. But we can expect it with the comfort of knowing that we are being persecuted for the sake of our king, and we have a very distinct purpose in that public persecution. We are to bear witness for our king. So, the 12 on this short-term mission, as well as any and all kingdom missionaries, that's you and I, must not be optimistic about the unbelieving world's response to the gospel. If we speak the message of our Lord, we'll be treated like our Lord. You say, why is it that I've never suffered any persecution and I've been a Christian for however many years? I could ask the same question, and, and I think we've got to come back to asking ourselves How accurately, how boldly, how much of a confrontation has the gospel that I've shared really been? Have I even really shared the gospel? Do I get up every day and pray that God would bring opportunities to me for the gospel and feel as if that is my evangelistic zeal at work? If we're going to be kingdom missionaries, the prayer needs to shift. And we need to pray for the courage to speak the truth in the opportunities that he's already placed in front of us. 
And if we do speak the truth in the midst of those opportunities, we can be guaranteed that the world will not respond kindly to that information. I propose that you and I do not suffer for the gospel because often we do not actually speak the gospel. You say, well, Adam, maybe it's just American culture. Maybe there's just not an offense anymore with the gospel. Maybe it's just a good message. And and in America, they just don't get offended by the gospel like they do in other cultures. We can't go there this morning, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31 clearly tell you that no matter the culture, the Jewish people find Jesus to be a stumbling block because he said he was the Messiah, and they cannot believe that. And the Greeks or the Gentile peoples find Jesus and the gospel to be idiotic. It's ridiculous. You believe in some guy that you've never seen who you say died for your sins and you never saw him die, and you say rose from the dead and you've never seen anybody else rise from the dead, and you believe that he has given you righteousness before God that you've never seen, and you learn all of this through a Bible that you say is inspired by the Holy Spirit whom you've never seen. And so to the rational mind, to the Gentile mind, to the American mind, if you will, The gospel is foolishness, but to those whom God is saving, it is the wisdom that leads to eternal life. So we must be faithful, and in being faithful as kingdom missionaries, we will encounter this kind of persecution. This is as true today as it was when Jesus sent the twelve on the first ever short-term mission to preach the gospel to the cities. Second instruction for us this morning. First, don't be optimistic about the persecution. Secondly, and quickly, do not be anxious about the persecution. Don't be optimistic. It's going to happen. It's really not for someone else. It's for you if you're a kingdom missionary. And secondly, don't be anxious about it. Don't be worried about the persecution. What a sweet comfort we find in verse number 19. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. I mean, that, that is a precious comfort. You can just imagine. You can just imagine what the 12 disciples look like at this point. Okay? I mean, they left everything, they're following Jesus. They've heard some awesome preaching. They're thrilled about the kingdom. They know that God's new covenant is in order because Jesus is here. The kingdom is at hand. And they're excited about it. They may not totally understand everything about it, all the nuances, but they're excited. And then Jesus says, I'm sending you 12 out and you're going to go and speak for me two by two. You're going to do signs and wonders. And at this point, they're just thinking, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be unbelievable. And then he says, oh, and by the way, I want you to beware, beware of men, because actually the word picture in your brain ought not to be superstar, it ought to be sheep. And you not ought to view them as your crowd of fans, but as a pack of wolves. So the disciples take a step back, and suddenly their optimism about the reception to the message may have dwindled. 
And then they find out that they're going to be brought into public situations and persecuted publicly. And immediately they're thinking, I'm just a fisherman. I'm, I'm just a nobody. I'm not special. I'm not trained in the, te- in the Old Testament Scriptures. I, I don't know the Hebrew Bible like the rabbis do. How in the world am I going to stand before a synagogue and know what to say? How in the world am I going to stand before a king who could kill me at an instant and, and know what to say? And you can just imagine this going through their minds. Jesus is looking at them and He says, don't worry. Don't be anxious about this. This is all taken care of. If you're going in, as a kingdom missionary to spread the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, you can be confident that in the face of persecution, you will be aided by the Holy Spirit in a way that will be distinctly for His glory. Notice what Jesus assumes that they're worried about. Right? We're reading this and we're thinking, I'm worried about this happening to me. I do not want this to happen. All right? I do not want to be pulled before Owen Schwarzenegger for the sake of Jesus Christ. All right? That's what we're thinking. I do not want to be publicly flogged. I don't want the Visalia Fair to include my beating. Okay? That's what we're thinking. Jesus assumes the opposite. They're not anxious about the persecution. Jesus assumes in verse 19, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. Jesus assumes you understand this is for His sake. It's for His kingdom. It's to speak for Him. And therefore, our concern is not with it happening. That's totally natural. Our concern is with how we say what we say when we're under persecution. And this is the sweet promise that removes from us anxiousness about this moment. The Spirit will direct our hearts and minds so that the how and the what of our speech before unbelieving authorities and persecutors will bring glory to God, will be clear. In other words, what we're saying here is the colloquial phrase, God gave me the words to say, is a legitimate testimony for the kingdom missionary who is being persecuted. The Holy Spirit directed my speech. It was as if I wasn't even talking. It was as if God was speaking through me. Things were coming back to mind that I had not thought about in years. Some of you could testify to this. You've been in that situation. You've known the gospel was coming up in the discussion. You started to get the pit in your stomach. You went ahead and said something about the gospel and you were scorned by the one who you were before. And instantly, like any American, you were humiliated and you were nervous and you thought, I don't know what to say back. And in that moment, there was a settledness And you had words to speak. You had wisdom. The gospel flowed from you. In the face of opposition, you were able to think and speak clearly. What a sweet promise. That was the Holy Spirit. He was active in a special way through you in that scenario. This then is a sweet consolation to those who are kingdom missionaries. When there is no time for preparation in persecution... The Spirit will guide your thoughts, words, and even your temperament. Now, just on the back side, let me just caution you. Do not be anxious about what you're going to say. Does not is not the ultimate excuse for not preparing for public ministry. Okay? It's not the excuse for not being trained in evangelism. None of those things. The context of this promise is persecution. It's the same 
It's the same warning given in food and clothing. Remember in chapter 6? Don't be anxious about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat. That, that was not code for don't work. Don't actually set aside food. Just don't worry. The Lord will take care of these things when there is no time or opportunity for persecution or for preparation rather. Pastor John says this in his note, this does not suggest that ministers and teachers should forego preparation in their normal spiritual duties. To cite this passage and others like it is to justify the neglect of study and meditation is to twist the scripture's meaning. This verse is meant as a comfort for those under life-threatening persecution, not an excuse for laziness in the course of ministry. Thirdly, Spiritual instruction for our minds. If we are sheep among wolves and we're to be wise and we're to be innocent or simple, we must not be optimistic about persecution, but we also must not be anxious about persecution. And thirdly, we find in verses 21 through 25, we should not be surprised about persecution. We should not be surprised about three realities in persecution. Number one, the depth of the hatred Number two, the persistence of the persecution. And number three, the reality of its presence. So do not be surprised about persecution. Notice verse 21. We'll find this to be the case. We'll deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's stop right there. Number one, we are not surprised about persecution and the depth of the hatred that comes when we are willing to be kingdom missionaries. You understand what's happening in verses 21 and 22. Jesus is basically making this declaration. The gospel will destroy families are we really ready for this are we really ready for this are we ready for biblically speaking the closest relationship of a brother to a brother to be shattered by the gospel are we really ready for the most loving and honoring relationship between a father and his child, his son, to be shattered by the gospel? Are we really ready for the, the relationship that is most, most seen as respectful and compassionate of a child to a parent to be shattered by the gospel? If you're here this morning and, and you're sitting here and really your thought is, whatever the Lord wants to do is fine, except if it shatters my family. That's an idol. Your family has become an idol of your heart. Those who are committed to the mission of the kingdom will be committed to their king even beyond their commitment to their family. Sidestep that for a minute. If we're trying to identify idols of our hearts, I was reminded this week so powerfully that anything in my life 
that I think I really could not go on living without apart from my relationship to the Son of God is an idol. Anything that I cannot think I would be able to live without apart from my relationship to the Son of God is an idol. He has all of me and only without Him could I not exist. What a struggle it is for us because our hearts are little idol factories. We make idols at an alarming rate. And Jesus says here, don't be surprised about the persecution. It's going to go deeper. It's going to go closer to home than you could ever imagine. If you're committed to the gospel, if you're committed to being a missionary for the kingdom, if you're going to live and speak for the king, it will destroy relationships. And we're going to see that in the final part of this chapter. Are we really ready for this? Jesus goes on to pile upon this in verse 22. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Not all people. As you know in your Bible, all is always controlled by the context. Okay? So this is not all people, as in every single human being on the face of the planet will hate you. Otherwise, we'd have no converts. There'd be no people who come to faith in Jesus Christ and are part of the kingdom. It's not all people as in every single human being will hate you. This is all people as in there's going to be no categories placed on this. Jews, Gentiles, young people, old people, rich people, poor people, socioeconomic standards. None of that will matter because anybody in all of those will hate you if they're a rejecter of the kingdom gospel. Don't be surprised at the depth of the hatred that will come for the sake of the gospel. Notice in verse 22. He concludes again with a little encouragement in that sentence. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Once again, Jesus is backing us up. He's standing behind you saying, it's me. It's for me. It's on my account. And your reward will be from me. We are amazingly out of time. John was right to not believe me. All right, let's find the promise and then we'll conclude this. The promise in verse 22 but the one who endures to the end will be saved. If you endure in the mission of the earthly kingdom, you will ultimately experience the conclusion of your salvation from the coming wrath of the king on all those who reject his lordship. Now, just so that we don't have any doctrinal error floating around, understand that your Bible in Jude chapter 24 and 20, verse 24 and 25, Jude is right before Revelation, also in Philippians 1, verse 6, clearly communicates to you that the endurance of the believer is not cause for his salvation. It is the proof of his salvation. So the one who began the good work in you will continue it. Scripture is quite clear that the ones who will persevere, who will endure to the end, are those who have been truly saved. First John says they went out from us, that is those who have not endured, because they were not of us. So a profession of faith that is genuine to the work of God will, in fact, endure. And the promise that Jesus provides here is the one who endures will receive the inheritance of the saints. They will experience their total salvation. Of course, you know who's in this audience, right? Who's listening to this? Judas is listening to this. Judas will not endure. And Judas will not be saved. 
Jesus promises here that for those who would face such persecution, both in the religious sense, in the governmental or cultural sense, even at the family level, are willing to be faithful to the kingdom mission in spite of the persecution, the physical abuse, the verbal abuse, the psychological abuse. If you'll endure, if you'll be faithful, if you'll set your eyes on the one who is the, the, the source of your kingdom mission, the one for whom, whose sake you are doing what you're doing, you're doing it in dependence upon grace, persevering to the end, you will be saved. So, don't be optimistic about persecution. It will come. Don't be anxious about it because you'll also find that when persecution comes, the Holy Spirit will be at work in a special way. And thirdly, don't be surprised at persecution when it faces you. The depth of the hatred will overwhelm you. It will be unbelievable to you. And we will find as we continue this study next week, looking into these future verses, that it will persist and that it will be a consistent reality for us. Let me close with this thought. You've been very patient. Let me close with this thought for you. The church, the church, you, right? The church is not a meeting. The church is not a building. The church is a people. The church, localized in gatherings of the church, which is the local church, the church is assumed by its head, that is Jesus Christ, to be made up of kingdom citizens, saved individuals. And as such, they are called upon to be missionaries for their king. And if they are faithful in their mission, it is assumed that they will suffer persecution for their mission. But in that persecution, they will experience the comfort and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And they will have the sweet consolation that they are in fact serving their king. And they are suffering for their king's sake. This week as we leave here and we begin the normal routine of Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening. And we get ready tonight to go back to the workplace tomorrow morning. Moms, you're getting ready for your week. You've got your kids and the school schedule and caring for your little ones. Those of you who are retired, you're looking at your week and planning out your activities, the fellowship that you'll enjoy, the different things that you'll be a part of. And in all of that, there must be above all of that, all of it must be, must be overarched by the umbrella of kingdom missions. I mean, the big theme of life has to be, I'm a worshiper of Jesus who speaks for him. I, I go with his, his kingdom mission. I go with the message of the gospel. And when we do that, we will suffer. But when we suffer, we'll be, we'll be comforted by the Spirit and we'll be aware, by God's grace, of the person of Christ for whom we suffer. Now, unbeliever, if you're here this morning, you're saying, you people, you people are crazy. This is amazing. Let me, let me, let me help you just for a second. Let me just share something with you. This is Jesus who is speaking these words in Matthew chapter 10. So we only have a couple options. If this is not true, then Jesus is not a good teacher. He's a liar. He's not to be trusted. 
if Jesus thinks this is true, and it's not true, then he's insane. And we're left with a crazy man as our leader. But, and indeed it is true, and Jesus believes it to be true, and he speaks the truth to us this morning, then he must be the Son of God. You can only respond to him as the Savior. To put him as a good teacher, but, but not the Son of God, is to really leave yourself with no good teacher. You have a liar. To put him with a well-intentioned man who is misled, you have a lunatic. But if he is, in fact, the true Son of God, you have a Lord. And the only response for you, unbeliever, the only response... It is the legitimate response is to bow your knee before him, to believe by faith that at the cross he took your penalty, he took your sin debt, and he paid it. His father punished him so that you would know forgiveness. If you believe that, that at the third day after his death, he was raised from the dead, he is alive, eternally alive, and that as a believer in his cross work, you are the recipient of eternal life. Only that response will result in your salvation. Jesus is nothing other than the God-man who substituted his life to bear the wrath of the Father against sin for those who believe. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you're not a believer this morning, if you do not follow Christ, if you profess to follow Christ and you want nothing to do with his kingdom mission, Repent and believe, and you will be saved. The King is worthy of our service. The Spirit will aid us in our service, and the King will return to bring us to an eternal reward if we are indeed enduring to the end. Father, thank you for this text. Such a short time to look at this and to deal with this, and yet we are gripped by what we see here. Help us not to shovel this into biblical history. To shovel these instructions for the mindset of the kingdom missionaries back into 2,000 years ago. Help us not to tuck it away under the rug of ancient discussion. Help us not to transfer this over and just make this a, a 12 disciple issue. It's, it's not really about us. Help us to sit and to bow before it. Help us to to be broken before you so that we are so consumed with the gospel, so overwhelmed by your grace, so unbelievably indebted to what you have accomplished on our behalf that out of the affection of our heart and out of the passion of our heart, we carry forth the kingdom mission. We carry forth the message to those who are like sheep without shepherds, who are wandering about, even if it means we are persecuted for you. Even if it means that the religious leaders of our day, the religious thinking of our day mocks us and scorns us. Even if it means our government turns against us and our authorities are opposed to us. Even if it means it shatters our family. Give us grace because the cross, the cross has made this a worthy life to live. To suffer. To be persecuted for the sake of our great Savior. Teach our hearts to submit to your word this morning, we pray. Thank you for those who are examples to us. Those who are living this life even now. Those who are here this morning who are faithful testimonies. I praise you and thank you for their testimony. 
raise us up as a local expression of your body that is faithful to your mission until you return, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.